Good afternoon. It is truly a joy and a blessing to be here. Uh, Aaron and I have been thankful to, to be away last week and be able to visit with family, but we are thankful to be back here with our spiritual family. Uh, I, I just wish that I could give you all a hug uh, upon returning um, as, as we hug our, our physical family. We, we talked three weeks ago uh, about why we believe what we believe. And, and when we, we talked about that, we really didn't talk too much at that point about evidences, about reasons for our belief, as much as we did about how we arrive at our beliefs. Uh, do I believe something to be true because it's what I feel to be true? Or because it's what I desire to be true? Or because it's what I've always thought to be true? Or because others say that it's true? Or, as we concluded that lesson, we talked about how really we need to believe something to be true because we have honestly and diligently investigated it and have come to the realization that it is in fact true. Well, today I want us to build on that and do some of that honest and diligent investigation to look at some evidences for our faith and really go all the way back to square one. And, and I hope that by exploring some of the evidences that the scripture uh, point us towards, some of the evidences that we see around us, that this can be helpful to us personally and our faith in the Lord, but, but also helpful to us evangelistically as we seek to teach others about the Lord. Uh, sharing the gospel really has three primary aspects to it. Convincing, convicting, and converting. Convincing, convicting, and converting. Uh, and in many cases, we may have to start with convincing, appealing to the, the mind or, or the intellect and, and giving evidence for our faith that there is, in fact, a God, that he is the God of the Bible, that what the Bible says about him is true. Uh, and then building upon that, convicting, we appeal to the, the heart, a realization of sin, of our brokenness, of our need for salvation. And then finally, converting, appealing to the will, urging somebody to take action and recognize what they need to do to respond to the gospel, to obey the gospel, to receive uh, the cleansing of God's grace. So convincing many times is, is going to be kind of the foundation of this or step one, if you will, especially in the world that we live in today. City data for Pittsburgh between 2000 and 2010 reveals that the non-religious, or those who identify as non-religious, overtook Catholics as the leading group. 40%, or nearly 40% of people in the Pittsburgh area identify as non-religious. In 2013, a Harris poll said in our nation, 26% of the population, a little over a fourth of the population, do not believe in a divine being. And that's not just saying they don't believe in the God of the Bible. 26% of our nation don't believe in a God at all. And so as we seek to share the gospel with others, in many cases, this is where we're going to need to start, is convincing that yes, there is in fact a God. Yes, he is the God of the Bible. And so that's what I want us to do today, but I hope it'll be helpful to us evangelistically in equipping us to share this with other people. We're going to try to keep this as, as simple as we can uh, unto that goal. Um, but also, I hope this will be helpful to us personally, 
Because when we have doubts and when we have questions about something that we read in the scriptures or something that's going on in our world and we have questions about the, the character of God, sometimes we need to go back to square one, go back to what we do know, and let that be our foundation as we work through some of these other question marks. So that's what we want to do today. Go back to square one. And certainly Jesus wants our faith to be grounded in evidence. In John chapter 10, verse 37, he says, if I do not do the works, do not believe me. And so we want our faith to be grounded in evidence, and that's what we're going to focus on today. We're going to talk about how can I know that there is a God? And, and to do this, we're going to start in this verse that Luke read for us here in Romans chapter 1 in verse 20. And in fact, this is going to be really the primary scripture that we look at. It's going to be kind of our, our, our jumping point to look at many other things. Uh, here in Romans chapter 1, as Luke began reading in verse 16, it says that the righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel. It, it says there in verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So for those who, who respond in faith, they, they see this righteousness of God. Uh, it produces greater faith within them. But then notice in verse 18, what else is revealed? Not only is the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel, in verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. While to those who respond in faith, they will re receive this message of the gospel, the righteousness of God, uh, also, we're going to see the, the wrath of God revealed to those who do not respond in faith as well, as he goes on to describe here. And notice in verse 19 and 20, he talks about those who ultimately are without excuse. If we are the subjects of God's wrath and not re re receivers of his righteousness within the gospel, uh, we have no uh, excuse for that. He says in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain or evident to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. I think we understand that to come to know God as he truly is, we need to go to the scriptures. To understand God's character, to understand God's will, his, his plan for salvation. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But here in Romans 1 and verse 20, we see that there are some things we can know about God even before we come to the scriptures. There are some things that are evident and God has made evident through those things which are made. What, what are those things there in verse 20? He says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. As some say, uh, as he goes on, in the things that have been made. That's what I want us to focus on today. If, if, if all we saw was just the world around us, what could we conclude about God? And I think there are some things that Paul tells us here, God tells us here, we can conclude. His eternal nature, his supreme power and wisdom, and his divine nature, that he deserves to be called God. So let, let's, let's focus on that together. First of all, I think we conclude that there is something eternal. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11 says that God has set eternity 
in man's heart. I, I think all of us understand, as, as we see the, the suffering of the world around us, as we see uh, you know, some sense of longing beyond what this world has to offer, that there is a, an innate sense within us that we long for something eternal. Something that's not passing. When, when we are at the funeral of a loved one, we long for something more. The question is, is that longing that I think we all feel um, simply wishful thinking? Or is there something behind that? Well, I think we'll see there is, in fact, something behind that. There is logical ground to support our innate desire for eternity. And we can really go to the most basic of scientific laws. This is really the basis of any scientific inquiry, the law of cause and effect. And it states that any or every material effect requires an adequate cause. Another way to say that is nothing comes from nothing. Uh, and we, we understand this. Uh, as we said, this is the basis for any scientific inquiry. If, if, if the law of cause and effect was not true, the question why would not be a question we could ask. We just say, well, there is no reason. But the question why implies that there is a cause to every effect. And, and we function this way from day to day. If you went home today and one of your windows was broken, you would immediately start drawing some conclusion about what caused that, right? If you saw a baseball lying on the floor and, in your living room, you might conclude one thing about what caused that window to break. Or if you saw that some things were missing from your home, you might conclude that maybe somebody broke in to that window. But none of us would go home and see our window broken and say, well, you know, that just spontaneously happened. There was no cause for that. We all, from day to day, function with an understanding of the law of cause and effect. If there was a, a grocery sh store that showed up down the street that hadn't been there before, you would immediately conclude somebody built that grocery store, right? It didn't just materialize out of nothing. We understand this, all of humanity functions by the law of cause and effect. Yet when it comes to the universe, there must be some point at which this chain of cause and effect can go back no further. There must be some eternal, self-existent first cause that could set the universe into motion. We might state it this way. If nothing comes from nothing, and there is something, there must have always been something, right? Uh, certainly there must be some point, some original cause that has always been in existence, that has always been there. There must have always been something. So there has to be something eternal to explain existence in the first place. And so we can ask the question, well, is this first cause, this eternal something, physical or non-physical? Well, if the first cause was physical, it would, too, be subject to physical law. It, too, would be subject to the law of cause and effect, and it would have to have a cause. And so if there is something that has always been, it, by its very nature, can't be physical. It can't be subject to physical law. It has to be beyond the law of cause and effect, beyond physical law, something non-physical, something supernatural is the only way we can explain existence. And not only can we conclude this from the law of cause and effect, 
but also something called the law of entropy. And as I said, I'm going to try to keep this as, as simple as possible and explain it in a way that we can explain to anybody and everybody. But, but this law of entropy, or the second law of thermodynamics, basically says that everything within the universe left to itself will progress from a state of order to disorder, from being usable to unusable. Uh, for, for instance, if you get in your car and drive home, the law of entropy tells us that your gas tank is going to have less gas in it when you get home than when you started. Right? It's going from a state of usable to unusable. The law of entropy tells us that if you take a uh, bucket of sand and you pour it out on the floor, it's not going to magically form itself into a sandcastle. Uh, left to itself, it is going to tend towards disorder, not order. And so this is a law that applies to the entire universe. Everything is progressing from a state of order to disorder. And the only way that we make something ordered is, is by us acting upon it. But, but on a grand scale, all of the, the, the molecules in the universe are slowly going from a state of usable to unusable. Um, for instance, you may have heard uh, a scientist talk about the idea of a, of a heat death, where all energy is expended and turns into to heat, um, where all usable energy is, is used up in that way. Uh, and a way we might illustrate this is by the illustration of an hourglass. If the law of entropy says that this only goes one direction, that in a, in a closed system, it, it's always going to go towards a state of disorder and unusable, then you might see an hourglass is illustrating this concept that, that every molecule in the universe or, or every, uh, every part of our universe is progressing from the top of that hourglass, and it's only going in one direction, to the bottom of that hourglass. From a state of order to a state of disorder, a state of usable to unusable. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that there has to be a beginning and an end, right? A point at which everything uh, is, is usable, a point at which everything is going to be disordered and unusable. If it only goes one direction, as science indicates to us, as observation indicates to us, uh, then there has to be a beginning and an end. A physical universe cannot be eternal. It must have a beginning and an end. Only an eternal, non-physical first cause could explain the existence of our universe. So when Romans 1 and verse 20 tells just by looking at the world around us, by seeing this principle of cause and effect, seeing that things progress from order to disorder, that we can conclude there is something eternal, something beyond physical law, something non-physical that has brought our universe to, into an existence. And, and really, even atheists, many atheists, would concede this point. Uh, I had a friend from high school who went off to college for several years and became an adamant atheist. And he and I had several discussions. There was one time that we were sitting down and I asked him to explain the origin of the universe. How, how does he explain the origin of, of, of all that we see around us? And so he drew a big circle on a piece of paper. And he said, this is all that's in existence. Everything that is. And then he drew a smaller circle. And he said, this is our universe. And it's subject to our physical laws, the law of cause effect, the law of entropy. But there's all these other universes. He started drawing other circles. 
And he said, in one of these other universes, the, the law of cause and effect may not apply. Uh, in, in one of these other universes, the, the law of entry may not apply. So something in one of these other universes caused our universe to come into existence. <laughs> well, first of all, we're, we're kind of acting on blind faith there. there. There's no evidence that we can point to for that. But what he just stated was that there is an eternal, non-physical first cause. We can agree on that. Now, the question becomes, is that an intelligent first cause or an unintelligent first cause? Is that supremely powerful and wise or just kind of blind chance? Is this first cause intelligent or non-intelligent? Is our universe the product of powerful designer or blind chance? I think we need to recognize that design demands a designer. Non-intelligence cannot produce intelligence, and chaos cannot produce order and complexity. Uh, and so this isn't just an eternal something. This is an eternal power that has created the world as we know it. Um, Psalm 119, uh, sorry, sorry, Psalm 19 points us in this direction. Psalm 19 and verse 1, we read, The heavens are telling the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the works of his hands. How does the heaven tell the glory of God? How does it declare the work of his hands? Well, when we look at the design and the beauty of the world around us, we see that there must be some designer to that. In Psalm 139 and verse 14, David says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. And so as we look at the universe around us, as we even look at our own bodies, we see the order and complexity that only an intelligent creator could make. Uh, we, we see the, the angle of the axis of, of our earth. We see its distance from the sun. We see the, the speed of its rotation and its orbit. We see the, the composition of its atmosphere and everything exactly as it would need to be to sustain life here on earth. And we have to conclude that somebody immensely, supremely wise created all of that. We look at our own bodies, our ability to see, our ability to hear, our ability to feel, our ability to, to have blood pumping through our veins with our heart, our, our lungs providing oxygen throughout our, our body through the bloodstream. We, we see our ability to digest, our ability to reproduce. All of that screams forth that there is a designer, that there is something intelligent that has caused all of this. A man named William Paley uh, wrote a, a work called Natural Theology, and in that he uses the illustration of if you were walking across the countryside and you stumbled upon a pocket watch, and you picked up that pocket watch and you looked at it and you saw how it functioned and you opened it up and you saw the gears turning inside, you would immediately conclude that there was a designer to that. It's too intricate, it's too uh, detailed in fulfilling a certain purpose that it didn't just appear out of nothing. And I, I think we can even take that uh, a step back. If you walked into the parking lot and you saw this, uh, for those who may not be able to see, this is a paper airplane, what would you conclude? 
Would you conclude that, that a piece of paper you know, just kind of fell out into the street and got ran over a few times by, by uh, a couple cars, by some kids kicking it around, uh, and, and it just kind of happened to fold itself into this structure? Well, no, even something as simple as five or six folds of paper, we look at and we see that it was, it was designed for a specific purpose, that, that it can fly, right? And that somebody designed that. Somebody worked at that. If we can conclude that that piece of paper and the, the few folds that it has has a designer, how much more when we look at the human body, when we see the world around us and all that it is designed to accomplish? We, we understand this intuitively. And it really takes great work on our part to try to get away from this idea. We understand design demands a designer. And if you look into the DNA of a single human cell, there's enough information in there to fill uh, a thousand volume encyclopedia. <laughs> Certainly, there is some immense wisdom and intelligence that brought life into existence. Now, Mankind has tried to deny this, and the primary way that we have tried to deny this is by the theory of evolution. We're not going to spend a great deal of time addressing this. There are many things that we could address with the, the fossil record and other arguments that are made. But I, I want to just briefly uh, address the, kind of the foundation of this theory of evolution, that ultimately it's dependent on the force of progressive mutation to create some new information to create some, some new aspect of design um, that you kind of have enough fortunate accidents by blind chance to bring about life as we know it today. Well, is there evidence for that? I think all evidence for this really boils down to primarily two categories. Either progressive adaptation or destructive mutation. And ultimately, no increase in order or complexity by natural processes can be demonstrated. Uh, for instance, in your science textbook, you may read about Darwin's finches or the, the peppered moths. Well, what do you have going on there? You have something that's already present in the DNA, that's already present in the genetic code, and certain circumstances are favoring what, what's already there? Did, did anything new get created? Well, no. Something that, that was already there, already present, was favored, and certainly there is progressive adaptation. Life functions that way. But there's no increase in order or complexity. There's nothing new that comes out of what was already present there in the genetic code. Or you have examples of destructive mutations. Really what you need is a progressive mutation. You need something entirely new, something that wasn't there before, um, some fluke in the genetic code that can actually benefit and through natural selection, through progressive adaptation, then be favored. But do we have evidence of progressive mutation? Well, most evidences presented at the end of the day end up being destructive mutations. Many evidences are, uh, are put forward for 
examples of, of E. coli bacteria that in specific sci scientific uh, environment or, or tests were able to develop the ability to, to digest something or uh, process something that they weren't able to before. But in doing that, in those laboratory situations, they, they ended up losing their ability to do a whole lot of other things that were necessary to life. Um, and so let, let me give some examples that I think we can understand very easily. Um, you have an example of sickle cell anemia. Being beneficial uh, in a specific situation. People with sickle cell anemia are less susceptible to malaria. Is that a progressive mutation? Well, in this one specific situation, there is some benefit to that. But by and large, sickle cell anemia, people who have it uh, have 30 years left life expectancy than your average person. Did it actually help them? Well, maybe in this one little situation. It would be like saying it's, it's beneficial to only have one arm because it's harder to get handcuffed. You know, it, it, it's not truly beneficial overall. Uh, but let's say, let's say there was evidence. Let's say that, that we did have a few examples of scientists working in specific laboratory situations where they finally found some truly, unquestionably, progressive mutation. W would that prove that, that evolution was, in fact, valid? Well, scientists estimate that there have been 10 million species that have walked the face of the Earth. How many progressive mutations would be necessary to produce 10 million different species of life? Let, let's be generous. Let, let's say that it took 10 progressive mutations to create a new species. Then we would need to have, throughout the history of the universe, 100 million progressive mutations to produce life as we know it today. And if we could even produce one example, or maybe four or five examples, would, would that then make this valid? No, if that is the case, this is something that we should be seeing occurring in nature right and left. Something that should be very evident to us, not just something that, that we on our own might be able to produce in a, in a laboratory situation. Even if you could produce four or five examples. That, that would be like me saying, well, you know, I found this, these similar looking fence posts in Canada and Norway and Sweden and Russia. And so there must have been a fence going all the way around the world at one point. No, it doesn't work that way. We lack any true evidence to show that this, this is possible by blind chance. Um, and so uh, we, we have no firm evidence in that regard. And another failure of the evolutionary hypothesis is this idea of irreducible complexity. Uh, many biological structures could not have evolved piece by piece over millions of years because they can't function unless all pieces are present. The, the easiest way to illustrate this is by the illustration of a mousetrap. If you have a mousetrap, you have five different pieces to it that, that are all necessary for the function of that mousetrap, right? You have the, the base, you have the hammer, the spring, the bar that holds the, the hammer back, and then the catch. 
But all of those pieces are necessary for it to function properly. Uh, if you didn't have a spring, there'd be no force behind it, right? If you didn't have the hammer, there'd be nothing to hit the mouse. If you didn't have the catch, there'd be nothing to trigger it. If you didn't have the, the bar, there'd be nothing, nothing to hold it back in the first place. If you didn't have the base, it would just be a bunch of pieces laying there, right? Every single piece is necessary at the same time for it to have any functionality at all. Well, we see many things like that in the biological world. Um, in animals, in our own bodies. We, we can see many different examples of this. Uh, the black bacterial flagellum, blood clotting, uh, the human eye. Uh, we could look at many, many different examples. I, I want to just explain one example um, and, and leave some of these others for further study. But uh, a giraffe's neck. Uh, giraffes can, can be as tall as 18 feet tall. So they have a very long neck. And to pump blood all the way up to their brain, they have to have a very powerful heart, right? Uh, because it's going against gravity to get the blood all the way all the way up to their brain. Um, but if they lean down to drink water and all of a sudden you have that extremely powerful blood pump now pumping downhill, naturally they, they would blow their brains out. <laughs> but it doesn't work that way because God designed it. What happens is as the giraffe lowers its neck, uh, the vertebrae in, in its neck function as shutoff valves, if you will, that, that restrict the, the flow of blood to the brain. And so it slows down that, that blood flowing to its brain. And that last pump of blood that kind of got past all those shutoff valves, if you will, uh, gets absorbed into a sponge at the back of the brain uh, so that it doesn't blow its brains out. Well, then what happens when it raises its head back up? Well, now it's not going to have the blood going to its brain. It's going to pass out. But that's not how it works. What happens is as it raises its head back, all those shutoff valves begin to open back up. And that last pump of blood that was absorbed into the sponge in the back of the brain, it is now pushed into the brain to regulate that blood flow to the brain, whether it has its head down or its head up. You, you can't just have one part of that and it all function at the same time. Right? You, you develop uh, you know, that powerful pump and that long neck, but you don't have the shutoff valves and you don't have the, uh, the sponge at the back of the rain. It's not going to survive. It's not going to function at all. You have many pieces, and this, this is just one of the most basic illustrations we could use, um, that have to be present all at the same time. So you can't have one progressive mutation here, and then it's going to stay there, and then another progressive mutation here, and it's going to stay... No, you have to have them all happen all at the same time for it to function at all, for it to live. Uh, and so as we see life uh, around us, there are many different things that function that way. And you can't explain it through evolution. It has to be that all of those things were present at the same time. And so ultimately the origin of our universe must be a supremely intelligent and powerful designer. Not only is there an eternal, non-physical first cause, he is supremely intelligent, supremely powerful and wise, and he is divine.
We see the eternal power and divine nature. He deserves to be called God. Ultimately, if he, this being, this intelligent creator, is the creator of all, that means he's superior to all. That means he deserves honor. He deserves glory. He deserves thanksgiving. Look back in Romans chapter 1. In verse 21, notice we read, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Later on, down in verse 25, again we read, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. What's the problem here? Mankind, even though they are without excuse, even though the eternal power and divine nature of God is evident to them, they refuse to serve him. They refuse to worship him. They refuse to honor him. They refuse to give thanks to him. If we recognize the supreme power and intelligence of this creator that that made everything around us, everything that we experience, our very selves, he deserves our service. He deserves our worship. He deserves our honor and thanks. And his greatness far exceeds anything our eyes have ever seen. Anything our ears have ever heard or anything any of our senses have ever experienced. His greatness far exceeds anything our finite minds can comprehend. When we see the beauty of a sunset, when we see the beauty of the night sky, we don't just say, well, nature is amazing, isn't it? You know, look at all what that blind chance has accomplished in the world. Now, when we see those things, we recognize that there is someone far more beautiful, somebody much greater and more powerful than anything that we can experience. And he deserves our all. He deserves our worship. And as creator of all, that means he has authority over all. That means we belong to him. We are his creation. He's the potter, we're the clay. And so he has a right to mold us and use us however he sees fit. I have no place to decide what my purpose in life is. No, my creator decided my purpose in life when he made me, when he brought the universe into existence. And so if we want to know why we're here, if we want to know what the purpose of our life is and what we need to be doing with this blood pumping through our veins and this this air coming through our lungs, then we need to ask him. Because he owns us. He created us. We belong to him. And so we'll... Lord willing, and in subsequent lessons, we'll look at some other evidences that will point us towards who this God is. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We're going to see some things that we can only conclude by coming to God's word. Uh, to fully have faith in the God of the Bible. Uh, but I hope today we can at least start at square one and say there is no question. There is an eternal, powerful, supremely wise, supremely powerful creator, and we belong to him. Are you serving him today? 
Or are you like those in Romans chapter 1 that, that are not giving thanks and are not honoring and are not serving and are not worshiping the Lord? Have you found other things that you have become your master? Are you serving self? Are you serving the world? God alone deserves your all, your service, your heart, your life. If you recognize today that you have not been serving him, know that he, he wants you back. He created you in his image, and though you may have marred that image horribly, through his grace and the sacrifice of his son, he wants to remold you. He wants to remake and re-imprint his image, his character within you. And if you're willing to confess your sins before him, confess your faith, your belief in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, you can turn away from your old life. By God's grace, you can bury your old life in the waters of baptism. You can be raised out of that watery grave, a new creation. By his strength and with his spirit, you can reflect his character, fulfill the purpose for which you were created once again. If you need to do that today, if you have made that commitment, but you're not living that way, and you need to make some public change, that's why we're here. Uh, we always want to, to give a call to action in any time we come to God's word. What, what do you see in the mirror of God's word today? If there's some change that you need to make, and if there's some way that we can help you in that change, we ask that you'll let us know at this time as Jason leads us in a song.